Hello and welcome to episode 403 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson. With me today is Eric Johansson, our producer. Nate is not here. He is on vacation, I believe, in Scotland playing golf. So you don't need to feel too bad about him. But he is still emailing us every day, keeping his inbox zero. Anyways, um, I am the co-founder of LSATdemon.com and the LSATdemon Daily podcast. And Eric is the producer for both Thinking LSAT and LSAT Demon Daily. Eric, what's it like creating this agenda for me and Nate and then hearing us comment on it? Is it is it at all like what you expected or do we usually just go off in some random direction and you go, okay, well, there, there you go. I frequently, well, I've lived with you guys in my head for years now because even before doing more of this producer stuff i've edited the show for a while so i've been a podcast <laughs> lis listener and editor for years so i usually have a pretty good sense of how you're going to respond to things when i put yeah. them on the agenda sometimes you surprise me sometimes you go off on a tangent that i wasn't expected sometimes you get more or less agitated by certain things than i might have expected but yeah um it's always fun to hear those those surprises uh you know i do my best to pick out because we can't get to every email that comes in but i do my best to pick out the ones that seem like they would be helpful that you might find engaging to talk about no well we appreciate it yeah you make our job much easier if you want to be lsat famous if you want to share news or ask questions you can do so on our website that's thinkinglsat.com and that will go to eric and eric will We'll uh, decide whether or not it should get on the show. Big news, right? Let's just jump into this. The U.S. News sure. rankings have finally dropped. Uh, they were going to come out, I don't know, it felt like a month ago, maybe two months ago. I don't, I don't even remember. But they were going to come out, but then because of everything that has happened over the last year, they delayed that, delayed it, delayed it. Now they have come out. Do you want to give a quick recap of what has happened over the last year and why these were delayed and maybe then we can go into what we might glean if anything from them yeah so this is predictably something we got a lot of emails about less so about the rankings themselves more so the change in methodology which we'll get into and the impact that the new methodology for these rankings might have on admissions or scholarship outcomes but as everyone remembers, law school started, quote unquote, boycotting the U.S. News rankings earlier this year. A number of high profile law schools decided to withdraw from participating in the rankings. Which is a little bit misleading, right? I mean, because it's not like right. they can they can voluntarily withdraw themselves from a ranking system that's Con, you know, constructed by U.S. News and World Report. They're still going to rank the schools. The schools are just saying, hey, we're not going to kindly give you the information you asked for correct so u.s news is now going to and this is where it's it's weird because i think there's now a split between schools that do continue to provide information and schools that don't provide information so it's up to u.s news to scrape Fill the internet in the for, or the, yeah exactly to well to go to the aba 509 reports and hmm. get the data themselves and I think the discrepancy between maybe the accuracy of those two might have had something to do with the delay. Mm. 
So schools were withdrawing from voluntary participation in the rankings. They weren't going to respond to the surveys anymore. This was going to delay the rankings somewhat. On April 11th, U.S. News finally, which is after April 11th is after these rankings normally would have come out, which I think typically they come out in March each year. So a little bit late, U.S. News releases a preview of the top 14 schools. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, just a little bit of info about what their new methodology is. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's really not much to I, I, like, there's not much in the publicly available data from that preview of the top 14 that seems all that interesting, but they got apparently a lot of feedback and questions from law schools afterwards. Yeah, and sure. they've not been super transparent on what the nature of that feedback was or what it was that schools were complaining about but there's speculation that it might have been that these schools that were no longer providing their own data directly to us news might have seen some inaccuracies or numbers that they disagreed with in the supposedly public data that us news found for themselves it's sort of unclear (laughs) but there was clearly some issues Schools pushed back. U.S. News withdrew the public preview of the top 14 and then eventually delayed the release of the rankings uh, indefinitely, even yeah. though they had said, hey, these are going to come out next week. They went back yeah. on that and said, we're going to delay it indefinitely. Hmm. It, it, felt, it feels like the schools want, want it both ways, or at least these schools that are pulling out of giving voluntary information to... <laughs> the U.S. News and World Report, which they certainly have the right to do, but it's like, hey, we don't like the ranking system. We don't want anything to do with it, but then complain about the data that was produced and... (laughs) Right. I don't know. It's It's, a weird back and forth. They they clearly care about this, although they're pretending that they don't, right? It's like, hey, we're broken up, but, oh, I really want to see what you're saying about me. Yeah, I had the exact same thought where it's like you've your ex, like someone, your friend tells you, hey, you know what your ex just said about you? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't care about her. Wait, what did she say about me? Yeah. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand it from this. If if U.S. News had gotten mistaken information from 509s and was reporting inaccurate data in their initial rankings, then I can see why the schools, even if they didn't want to participate, would want to correct that. But it does just throw the whole system into question. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I mean, I can see their desire to correct it, get the information out there that's correct, especially if it helps or hurts their rankings, right? They want to make sure the information is good. But at the same time, it felt like their whole message was, hey, the rankings are bullshit. They're not useful. They're wrong. They're distorting the whole system. So I don't want anything to do with it. So the the I don't know. It seems like the the posture, the position that they should take is, yeah, well, it's garbage. The data is garbage. The rankings are garbage. But they know that, to me, it reveals how much they actually still respect the rankings or at least fear them and therefore want to, (laughs) you know, in their public-facing comments, denounce them, but then behind the scenes do what they can to get the best possible ranking they can get. Yeah, I agree. I think they know that it's the rankings are still very powerful yeah in in the marketplace yeah and have a probably a large effect on their jobs <laughs> yeah 
Anyways, I keep interrupting. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, so, no, it's good. So, so they finally came out, and what did what did we learn, if anything? Well, the, the rankings, the new rankings themselves, are not really interesting to talk about. Minor changes within the top fourteen. Stanford okay. is tied with Yale now in the number one okay. spot. Woo. Okay, Stanford and Yale are at the top. All right, and then we have yeah. three tied for fifth. Right? Yeah, I there's that's <laughs> there are a ton of ties throughout the entire like list of rankings which is yeah. just it's funny to me if they should just like change to a tier system or something yeah like actually S that would be your a tier that would probably better reflect reality right it's it's like so what are what is a ranking system a ranking system is trying to say this school is better than this school but if if that's not actually something you can determine then the model is more accurate than reality right it's like it uh, it's not more accurate, but it it creates this false sense of accuracy that doesn't exist, right? That oh, some school can be slightly better than another. Well, that's going to depend a lot on the individual going to that school and what they're going to get out of it. So, a school that's ranked fourth could be astronomically worse <laughs> than a school that's ranked seventh for someone, depending on right. their individual goals and so forth. But the system makes it look like, oh, well, you got into a seventh-ranked school with this other person got into a fourth-ranked school. They're so much better than you. And that's that's just not reflective of the actual reality, especially since there are so many unknowns in the black box of what makes a school good or not good, right? So right. I agree. Like, it should just be, like, top 15 <laughs> altogether. They're all tied. The top right. then, what, yeah. 30, 40, 50? <laughs> They're all tied. I mean, yeah, take your pick. I think it's a... <laughs> it's a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe you want a top three and then a top 15 and then a... Who knows? But I think the tiers, doing a tier system might be more helpful. I don't know. Maybe perhaps less interesting. Anyways, the, the minor changes in the top 14, predictable, like not surprising. Some of the wider swings within schools dropping 20, 30 points or gaining 15 20 points below mm -hmm. the top you know 20 or so not surprising totally normal yep. the bigger differences in the change to the methodology and this is what we yep. got a number of emails from listeners about just asking yes yep how does this methodology change affect the future of law school admissions and of scholarship money in particular mm -hmm. the big headline is that previously in the rankings the most important metric quote-unquote metric that U.S. News was using was the peer assessment score, was yeah. the reputational surveys that combined the surveys that went out to other law schools asking them to rank each other and yeah. surveys that went out to industry people, lawyers, judges, asking them to rank the law schools. And those, yeah. that reputational component accounted for previously 40% of the mm. overall ranking. Yeah, That's down yep. to 25%. Okay. In its place... Now the most important elements in the rankings or the most highly weighted elements in the rankings are quote unquote employment outcomes yep. and bar passage rate. So okay. we have this employment score, which now accounts for 33% of the ranking, which is up from 14%, more than doubling its importance. Okay. And then we have first time bar passage rate and ultimate bar passage rate combined making up 25% of the ranking weight. Wow, which is that's up interesting. From, which used to be just 3%. So bar passage rate now wildly more important than it used to be in the rankings. Okay. So schools 
are going to want to look at, okay, what percentage of our class is passing the bar? And because that's a big deal, right? The first time, what percentage of our class is getting jobs uh, as defined by the U.S. News ranking system? And then this is another thing where the devil's in the details, right? So the employment outcome score is outcomes 10 months after graduation. And that 10 months yeah. number is supposedly you give your graduates time to study and pass the bar and then some time to look for jobs. Yeah. But they within that 33% of weight that they give to employment outcomes, the type of jobs that students get are given different amounts of weight. So if you have a part-time job or a job that is merely you know jd advantage rather than jd uh, uh required those are going to be weighted as less useful than jobs that are full-time jd required one of the sticking points in previous years was whether we would give full credit or whether us news would give full credit to school funded positions yeah fellowships other academic yeah. positions yeah or to people pursuing PhDs or other graduate degrees after their JDs. Yeah. This was something that I think the top law schools in particular really wanted. Yeah. They really wanted US News to actually give students full credit for those school funded positions, which yep. they didn't in the past. And that was widely cited as a reason why these schools hated the rankings and were withdrawing. Yeah. So U.S. News has gone back and said, actually, actually, yes, we will count those. If you have a school-funded fellowship, as long as it lasts for, as long as it's a full-time or, or lasting longer than a year, if, hmm. you're, if your JD job is funded by the school where you graduated, that's fine. Still counts 100%. That's so interesting because it's the school giving you the job and it's the school that's benefiting from that ranking so I wonder if that counted before and then they, they removed it because of those that gaming system or, or what. But I think so. Yeah, and now they're bringing it back. Yeah. One of the things, and I remember reading Berkeley's statement, is one of the things that Berkeley said when they chose to withdraw was that they claimed that a large percentage of those fellowships that they gave were to support graduates who go, are going on to work in the public interest. Yes. So some people are getting hurt, even though some people are taking advantage yeah. Yeah. So if you remove the if you remove the value that you place on the school funded stuff, maybe that disincentivizes schools to help out those pursuing work in the public interest, which, you know, they claim that's a big part of their goals. Um, anyways, the, the headline is employment yeah. and bar passage rate. Now the most important part of these rankings way up far more than they used to be. On its face, that seems like a good thing to me. That seems right, that that would be more valuable than just some peer assessment score. Yeah. How it works out with like specifically how they create those rankings or how they calculate a school's employment score. There's always going to be details there that get gamed by the schools themselves. But it on its face seems right to me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So what they're doing is. Uh, just to to clarify here, employment plus bar passage accounts for 58% of the ranking now. So they're really saying, how are you succeeding at getting people prepared <laughs> to practice law and end up practicing law? 
which yeah. which kind of makes sense. And of course, then the question becomes, okay, what does that mean? At least for our audience, right? What does that mean for applications? Yeah. So the big thing that students are now asking about, the listeners are asking about is the fact that LSAT score previously, so your incoming classes, median LSAT score accounted for just over 11% of yep. the of the weight previously that's now five percent yep undergraduate gpa used to account for almost nine percent that's down to four percent so from 20 percent of the overall weight down to nine percent for the combination of lsat and gpa does that mean because lsat and gpa lsat specifically are less valuable on their face in the overall rankings, does that mean that schools will stop giving out so many generous merit scholarship offers in order to buy LSAT scores? What does this mean for people studying for the LSAT, planning to apply in the future? Are we going to see fewer merit scholarships based on LSAT score because of this change? So the real answer to that question is we don't know. We have no clue, right? And even no. the estimator right now, which is at lsadema.com forward slash scholarships, is looking backwards, right? It's looking in the rear view mirror and saying, hey, what happened with scholarships last year? Based on that, we're going to try to predict what's going to happen with scholarships this year. And so in some ways, we're going to have to see how this plays out in the upcoming cycle and then say, okay, this is how much LSAT and GPA still matter if it changes at all, if it goes up, if it goes down. But what's interesting here <laughs> is that on the surface, it looks like LSAT and GPA are going to matter less, that schools might reallocate the funds that they do have away from scholarships to something like career bar services, prep. bar prep. Yeah, just just go straight to the <laughs> the source of the problem, right? Sure. But- you also have to think about, okay, how effective are those programs at getting people employed, at getting people to pass the bar? And it's very possible, I have no idea, but it's very possible that schools may conclude the best way to ensure that your class gets a job and the best way to ensure that your class passes the bar is to make sure to get a class that does very well on the LSAT and GPA because... <laughs> What do employers look for right now? Big law looks at GPA. And of course, bar passage is going to be highly correlated with LSAT success. Of course, there are different types of tests and so on. But if you're so good I think, at the LSAT. I think, that's a, I think that's a question. I think that's a good question. We can talk about that in a sec, but go on. Okay. Okay. So that's my speculation. <laughs> yeah. Everything here is with a big asterisk. Yeah. Um, but it's possible. I guess my point here is it's very possible that someone in admissions or whatever in the law school hierarchy may decide that the best way to achieve these new, um, to do the best they can in employment and bar passage is to continue to place a lot of value on applicants with high LSAT scores and high UGPAs, right? We do know from studies that a high LSAT or LSAT and UGPA undergraduate GPA combined do a very good job, 60%, 66%, something like that, at predicting law school grades. And we know that law school grades generally do a good job of predicting your likelihood of being hired. 
And so someone in a law school may say, hey, we should increase career services. I do think that's going to happen for sure. But we also need to make sure that we get the best class we can, because those are the kind of students who are going to end up doing the heavy lifting that's required to get a job and to get good grades. This is the weird thing about economics, right, and math and on all these things is that sometimes when you implement a change, your predicted outcome is literally the opposite of what you might expect on the surface. It's possible that not only does LSAT and GPA continue to be important, it may actually become more important. Mm -hmm. Who knows? It could drop. But law schools are trying, now they have new targets. These are our new goals for anyone who cares about the US News rankings. And mm -hmm. what's the best way to achieve those targets? I don't know. A lot of schools probably don't know. They have probably a better insight into what leads to the success. But um, it may involve focusing more on LSAT and GPA. I think that's right. I think, like you said, different schools will have different reads on this methodology. Yeah. And because, and I can go into it, because the evidence that we have about the correlation between LSAT score, GPA, and your law school success or your bar passage rate, because any evidence of those connections is is there, but maybe tenuous, schools will have to judge how much they believe in the predictive power of the LSAT and GPA, Yep, yep. Which, which I think they do. Well, that's pretty, but, I mean, LSAC at least, according to LSAC, it's decently well established, right? They have studies right. that they've done, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, um, what do we know about career services? And if you really put money into that program, how effective is that going to be? This is going to be a lot of law schools experimenting with a lot of different ways to try to win the game. We know that WashU, ASU, they said, hey, we're going to win this game by doubling down on LSAT and GPA. That's what they did in the past. I don't know what they're going to do going forward, but they're different philosophies about how to win the game. Anyways, go ahead, Eric. Sorry. Yeah. No, just I, it's good that you you mentioned the LSAC stuff. Um, obviously, coming from a biased source, LSAC that administers sure. the LSAT. That they love the LSAT. Pointed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I do too. So, like, I can sympathize. <laughs> um, they they point to data which suggests a pretty strong correlation between LSAT and specifically combined LSAT and GPA with your law school GPA. Yeah, and I can link to some of that in the show notes. I found this other study done by some law professors at the University of Colorado who were yeah. not so sure, who were not so quick. And I didn't read the full 60 pages, but okay. there's some interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I found this quote that says, so they, they looked at the LSAT and just a bunch of other metrics and more qualitative uh, factors that might go into and how they correlated with law school success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... There's this quote from, I think, the abstract that says, though schools clearly weight LSAT over UGPA, evidence the LSAT truly predicts loss, law grades is underwhelming. The new findings on LSAT predict, predictive power are mixed and fail to control for other key variables. You said the new findings, which makes them sound more credible, but this is the few findings? Uh, did I read that incorrectly? The few findings, yes. Yes. You're correct. But I, yes. Just to, yeah, okay. Because new no, sounds important. like, oh, shit, some stuff has dropped and it's not as, you know, it's older. But anyways, yeah, go no, ahead. No, that's important. Uh, there's there are there's relatively little actual 
research onto this correlation between mm. LSAT mm-hmm. and your law school success. But yep. they mention other factors that they were looking for that have not been controlled for in previous studies. Sort of the difference between high LSAT, low GPA splitters versus high GPA, low LSAT splitters. Mm. I found this to be interesting. They claim that a STEM or EAF, which is economics, accounting, and finance major, is a significant plus akin to three and a half to four extra LSAT points in its its predictive power. So schools might choose to read that and say, hey, if you have a STEM major, add four LSAT points. Yeah. Several years work experience is significant plus with teaching, especially positive. This was interesting. A criminal, and remember, this is all uh, supposedly looking at the predictive power of certain non-LSAT-related items uh, yep. to your long-term success. A criminal yep. or disciplinary record is a significant minus akin to seven and a half fewer LSAT points. Wow. If I, I were a law really school, that. I would definitely want to dig into this, right? Because this is what we're trying to do. You're trying to take data and then predict how successful this student is likely to be in your class. Yeah. So anyways, this is one study from the (laughs) University of Colorado from 2016, which seems to run counter to LSAC's studies that claim a strong predictive power of the LSAT in your law school success. This study is not so sure. They, They basically point to you have to account for a lot of other things. Another thing later in the paper that they said, which I found interesting, even if the LSAT helps predict LGPA, it may do so for a less substantive reason. Test taking speed helps determine performance on the LSAT and traditional in-law cl- in-class law exams that produce most law grades. So this would suggest that maybe what law schools find most predictive about the LSAT is that it's done under timed conditions as like your law school. law school exams will be. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So what does that have anything to do with the dramatic increase in the number of students who are seeking and getting accommodations, right? Does that, could that, ex- no could idea. that, ex- if schools know this, I mean, how many schools even know this or are aware of these potential findings, but I don't know. If you did know that, that would explain why schools might be asking for those volunteer questions, right? Like, hey, why did you take the LSAT again? <laughs> Hoping that mm-hmm. you divulge that you got time. And then maybe some schools, I would I would be shocked if there aren't some who are then discounting that score if they believe this to be true, for example. I think every school is going to have to make its own decisions on where to place importance on what it views as truly predictive of your potential long-term success. To sort of wrap this up, because we've spent a lot of time on it, maybe more time than we should have. um, In speaking about LSAT correlation to bar passage rate specifically, there was a a law school transparency study done in 2015, which says that the LSAT is the best tool we currently have for predicting a law school applicant's likelihood of passing the bar exam. So suggesting there is significant correlation between your success on the LSAT and your eventual bar passage rate. I think it's even more predictive at the higher end of LSAT scores. Yeah. So the higher your LSAT, the more predictive it is from what I remember reading. Okay. This was from also before LST joined the Law School Admissions Council, if that's a concern to anyone. Access Lex did a different, maybe less robust study 
where they basically say hey, it's not so clear that there is a connection between LSAT and bar passage rates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lots of mixed so, data. <laughs> so there's a ton of mixed data. I have no idea what to think of it. I, my suspicion is that if you had to pick one metric to look at, to try to predict whether a student would be successful in law school and on the bar exam, if you had yep. to pick one metric, it would be the LSAT. I think schools probably still feel that way. They will make their own decisions on how to adjust and maybe consider other factors and <laughs> switch to a more holistic admissions process. But also that sounds like a lot of work, more work than many law school admissions offices would be willing to do. And many will likely still just want to look at your LSAT score first and foremost. But well, I don't know. And Eric, too, you posed this question. You said, if I had to pick a metric, but what if you got to pick two? Right? Then it would be LSAT and GPA. <laughs> yeah, I mean, GPA. And that would be even more predictive, even if still wildly unpredictive of success. It still could be more predictive than obviously just one and more predictive than maybe anything else they have in their arsenal. So, yeah, it remains to be seen what will happen. But thanks for doing all this research and thanks for digging sure. up these studies. It's super interesting, um, especially those numbers you were giving about a criminal record, a seven-point drop, and then STEM background leading to a potential three-point increase. Not in score, but equivalent to someone who has a three-point higher LSAT score. Yeah, right? as, a as a predictor for law school success, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. So all of this, you know, we, we point out, I think like you said, to say that just because LSAT and GPA are now less valuable in the U.S. news methodology, they might be even more valuable to law schools, given that career outcome and bar passage rates are now so much more important in the rankings. We just don't know, and we won't know until next year, probably. We won't know, yeah, and we'll start to see what happens. And even then, schools will experiment and learn from their mistakes and keep tweaking. So it'll be interesting. Does it in any way change our recommendation for students and how they should approach the LSAT or law school admissions? That's a very good question. I don't think it does right now because until we know more, right, it's hard to see how soft factors can have much of an impact because of the fact that they're soft, right? How do you distinguish between someone who's worked at one job versus another? It's very possible that working is now going to have a little more weight, like, oh, I can see they got a job and it was a you know challenging job. So it seems likely they're going to get a job when they graduate law school. Does that mean, oh, don't worry about your LSAT score and start working on an internship? I don't think so. It's just very right. hard to quantify that. And that's that's also, by the way, why rankings are so powerful. We may disagree with them. We may hate them. And like the law schools say they're stupid, but people use numbers <laughs> to make decisions it's so much yeah. easier so to see these things changing dramatically is at least at, at this point hard to see so continue yeah. to focus on gpa if you're in school if you're done with school then continue to focus on lsat i would not want to apply with a low lsat and cross my fingers this cycle that oh now other things are going to matter more that would seem like a fool's errand It'd, be, it'd kind of be like, I'm going to stop studying for the logic games uh, because I think they might be changing to a different format soon. 
Like we got yeah. a lot of questions from students on are the logic <laughs> games changing? It's like, I don't Can I know. forget about that. Sh- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, sh- you should keep studying the current logic games. Yeah. To shift into LSAT stuff. I noticed in your class report uh, or Abigail's class report that she wrote up for you yesterday and that you had a discussion, I guess, in class about correlation versus causation as a very important concept on on the LSAT. And uh, just because I was digging into a lot of this, these questions about the potential correlation between LSAT and law school success, I thought that might be an interesting thing. Maybe you want to recap sort of what you talked about in class yesterday. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The quote that I pulled was while correlation alone doesn't prove causation, it is evidence of causation. Yes. Okay. So in fact, what we were just talking about, right, were studies and we were trying to look at uh, a correlation between LSAT scores and bar passage rates and so forth. And it's one thing to try to establish a correlation. You're showing that, hey, look, if this person gets a higher uh, LSAT score, that suggests that they're more likely to get a higher bar passage rate. If you can see that sort of trend, then you've shown that there is or might be or is, in fact, a correlation between those two things. And what a lot of people do is as soon as they see a correlation between two things, they immediately assume that one of them must cause the other, right? Like if people who um, smoke are more likely to get lung cancer, that's a correlation. That's saying, hey, these two things happen together. We see um, these two events, smoking and lung cancer, happening to the same people. So you say, ah, okay, I know what's going on here. Smoking is causing lung cancer. And while the correlation is evidence for that, it suggests that might be happening, the problem on the LSAT is that these arguments always go too far and they say, hey, therefore smoking does cause cancer. I, I heard this on... Um, I think the Freakonomics podcast, I don't know if it's true, but I think what they were saying is that you can never prove causation or that we almost never prove causation in science. That seems like a pretty bold claim, but I think think if that's what they were saying, you almost never prove it, but you may get really, really close, right? You've controlled for... 15 potential variables that could explain why these things are happening together and you show that this is the only variable that is correlated with that other outcome, then that's pretty damn strong evidence that that is the causal factor. But I think what they were trying to say on that podcast, and I'm sympathetic to this claim, that it's still at the end of the day, studies can't, unless you can like get into the... (laughs) the physical matter of like what's affecting something else, right. all you're really doing in most studies is is studying correlations. And yeah. then And even if you could get into that into the subatomic level, you probably have some quantum physicist who would shake their finger and say, Yeah, oh, oh, not so uh, simple. there's randomness or I don't know. Yeah, who knows, right? Yeah. Like and maybe that was their point. But for the the purposes of the LSAT, what happens so so frequently is the LSAT establishes some sort of correlation between two things and then immediately jumps to the natural, stupid, everyday conclusion that this one thing must have caused the other. And what I wanted to clarify to the class was, hey, look, that is evidence for it. Like we can now start to think maybe that is a causal relationship. Maybe A does cause B, but it's just not proof. 
And when the yeah. conclusion is this does happen or this does cause this, A does cause B, that's when you need to put the brakes on and say, well, not necessarily, maybe B causes A or maybe something else causes both of them or maybe the study itself was flawed and the correlation doesn't even exist. We just right. think it does. I'm interested, do you ever see students take this idea too far? Because it's important, I think, that you noted correlation is evidence, is some amount of evidence for causation. Do you ever yep. see students take this too far and say, the moment they see a mention of a correlation on the test, they're like, this is a correlation causation flaw. There is zero <laughs> evidence that this caused yeah. the other thing. Yeah, they yeah, exactly. They make that other LSAT law, right? Which is like, hey, it's a correlation. I know correlation does not prove causation. Therefore, right, A didn't cause B? Like, what? Or, or like, I mean, that's even worse than what you were saying. You were saying there's no evidence, so we just don't know. We don't know what A and B's relationship is. It's like, yeah, it's some evidence. There's a, some inkling here. There's some, some clue that maybe A does, in fact, cause B. There's, it's just that's not the standard. The standard is, does it have to be true? And if it doesn't have to be true, then the argument's flawed. It's sort of like this weird LSAT brain that people, that I think students of all levels get sometimes. Or a, a version of what they what they think LSAT brain should be, which is like, I see the statement smoking is highly correlated with with cancer. And they just they see they hyper focus on the word correlation and think, mm -hmm. ah, I know of the correlation to causation flaw. Therefore, smoking is like definitely does not cause cancer because they're testing yeah. me on that flaw. Oh, it's sort yeah. Of like or that metagaming yeah, yeah. The test when yeah. in fact, like. We just got to be a little more. Yes, you should be skeptical of the causation, but also reasonable and re recognize that, no, there's a high correlation between those things. Yeah. Yeah. And that changes too the focus. Right. So like if 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 the LSAT says, look, people who smoke are very are more likely to get cancer. Well, OK. Correlation. Boom. And then the conclusion says, therefore, smoking might cause cancer. I'm not having any problems with that correlation to causation <laughs> argument, right? I'm like, yeah, it might. <laughs> so where yeah. else is the flaw, right? But other people might just be so sucked into, uh, I know the correlation causation flaw. I know that's probably being tested here. So that's what's wrong. It's like, no, you need to listen to the conclusion. And there, the conclusion didn't fuck up. Yeah, very well might be the case. For sure. Cool. I think that's a good lesson to learn. Should we move on to this next thing from Anonymous? You want to read this? Yeah, yeah, we should. Um, the subject is study tips for an active duty Marine. Yeah, I can read it. It says, good afternoon, Ben and Nathan. I'm an active duty Marine officer applying to a funded USMC program that sends you to law school to become an, a judge advocate. Due to minimum time in service eligibility requirements, I will be applying for the program in October of 2024 and if accepted, would begin law school in 2025. We got some time then. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. 2023. I was recommended your podcast by a mentor and have already listened to 25 episodes in two weeks during my drives to and from works. work. I began my studying two weeks ago as well and scored a 147 on my diagnostic exam. Okay. Solid. Yeah. Great. Starting Solid. score. The minimum to apply to the program is 155 which I'm confident I can surpass. 
Due to the nature of my job, I travel frequently and therefore have to mostly study on my own. I'm currently using another prep book to study. However, I was curious as to whether the two of you had any other specific recommendations. The same mentor that recommended your podcast recommended LSAT Demon, which I am highly considering signing up for. Thank you, and I appreciate your advice. I mean, if you're traveling on the road and you're looking for a tool to use, you can use LSAT Demon on your phone. Uh, we have an iOS app, but you don't need an iPhone. You can also have Android because it's all uh, browser, mobile browser compatible. Yeah, I would just start with Demon Free and see exactly what we're talking about. And I think that will convince you to sign up. I don't know much about the judge advocate position. I know I've had students in class mention it as a potential route for them. Yep. If they're going to fully fund your law school and you've got over a year to get from 147 to 155, I think that's totally doable, right? Yeah, I mean... I would be inclined to keep going, right? What do you think about that 155? Well, I think you could absolutely get to higher than that. It's a question of what do you want? Do you know that this is the right path for you? Do you definitely want to be a judge advocate? And, and a 155 is what it takes to get a fully funded trip to law school to follow that path, then great. But is there any part of you that is interested in what might happen if you, I don't know, pushed it to a... 165 or higher and applied more broadly because you might not need USMC to pay for your law school if that's the case. True. Well, I also think that the UMC may pay for your law school, but your 155 is going to limit what schools you can go to. And depending on where you want to be in the country, right, that could be mm. dramatically limited. So even though it's getting paid for, it's just not that not that many great options. I don't know. Well, um, Anonymous, I think that you have a great starting score. You can go a lot further than 155, uh, especially if you sign up for the Demon. We see it happen all the time. So try out Demon Free, see what we're talking about, and keep us posted. Anything yeah. else? I, I was just going to say, you, you take a... You specifically mention that you because of your frequent travel, you have to mostly study on your own. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're, I don't know if you're lamenting the fact that you can't go to classes or that you don't have a study buddy, but many people study on their own. And most of your progress is going to come from studying on your own, from putting in the work in your own self-study. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't sweat the fact that you can't go to live classes too often. Um, don't, I wouldn't worry about the fact that you're studying on your own. If that is all a concern, maybe I'm reading too much into that. Sure. Well, and also I wonder, does Anonymous even understand how Demon Live works? Because everyone's connecting via Zoom from random parts in the world, right? So unless you don't have access to the internet, maybe you can just still yeah. do live classes. We have four, yeah. five, six classes a day spread throughout the day. So I don't know what time zone you're going to be in, but you'll probably still be able to find one or two classes that you can attend and or watch the recording after it's over, which really is all you should be doing, right? To get back to your point, Eric, right? We have people who come to like four classes. It's like a day, stop, right? Yeah. Do one class, maybe two, and then go and do the work on your own. You need to do work yeah. on your own. 
So yeah, yeah. I agree. Just stay, stay consistent, get in an hour a day if you can. Um, you should be able to do that on the road, you know, get out your laptop or your phone and do some drilling when you're on the flight to wherever you're headed to. And yeah, if you do want to dive in, uh, jump into an occasional class and you're able to, great. I am amazed at the number of times I greet the class and say, hey, good morning, good afternoon. And it actually, like someone's like, oh, it's 11 o'clock at night for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's funny. Uh, keep Keep it up, Anonymous. Uh, thanks for writing in. We got an email here from Rebecca. Uh, just to summarize some of the background, Rebecca is graduating from undergrad soon. Says, surprise, surprise, that she doesn't really want to take a gap year. <laughs> Rebecca had a 149 diagnostic, which is great. Studied with uh, studied for a while with another prep book, but found during that time that her PT scores were going down. We don't know if that decrease in PT scores actually had to do with studying with the other prep book if that was just random variance over a short period of time. Um, but Rebecca goes on to say, I've been researching prep courses for the LSAT and think the demon is the best fit. I am hoping to get your guys advice on when the best time to start using the demon is and for how long I should use it for. I am also wondering when the best time to take the LSAT is and if taking a gap year is worth it. Thank you for taking the time to help me, Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca, good questions. I think what Rebecca is doing is what a lot of people are doing when they first start studying for the LSAT or start thinking about law school, right? They plan backward. They say, oh, okay, I want to go to law school <laughs> next fall. So I need to apply this fall, which means I need to take the LSAT in June or whatever, and uh, which is too late at this point. So maybe they're thinking August or September or whatever. They, they're looking at the LSAT that they think they have to take. And then they say, okay, uh, that's in September. How long does it take to study? Does it take a month? Does it take two months? I, I guess I'll start two months before that. And that would be great if we could know how long it would take you to study, if we knew how long it would take you to get your best LSAT score on record. But we don't. Some people take a month, some people take a year, some people take six months. So Rebecca, the best time to study is usually now. It's not, if you're still in undergrad, which I guess you are, um, I, you're graduating soon. So presumably your grades are over <laughs> and you, there's nothing more to do there. If there is though, like even final exams, right? Do the best you can on your classes because once your grades are set in stone, you can't change them. Heck, you may even want to postpone graduation. But assuming your grades are in order, then you do want to start studying now. And just, just don't worry about the timelines. Focus 100% on getting the best LSAT score you can get. When you're ready, you take the test. You see what score you got. If you need to take it again, you take it again. Because once you get that LSAT score, in hand, an official LSA score, then you can decide what you're going to do next. And for a lot of people, that does mean taking a gap year and it is worth it. Yeah. Speaking as someone who took 10 gap years, you'll be just <laughs> fine. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> um, ben, I, I want to, we kind of get this question a lot. Uh, yeah. About creating a study timeline. Yep. This thought popped into my head the other day on a way to answer this question, which I don't know if it's actually a good piece of advice or not, but the, the, for whatever reason, the phrase that came into my head was 
Study as if you will be studying forever. Study as if you're just going to be studying the rest of your life. And, and that comes from, I actually just started training again for um, some, some running events later in the year. And when you're training for a big race, you do that thing that you described of like working backwards from race yeah. date. Yep. And kind of building up towards it so that you peak at the right time. But but that only you only do that because for certain athletic events like that, there is, I think research suggests like a physical limitation on how many times you can peak in that way over the course of a year. That you can't just keep adding and adding and and training and training indefinitely, that your body does need to, after like five, six months or whatever, recover before you can push again. So you kind of, you do have to organize your physical training in those sorts of race specific cycles, but the LSAT isn't like that. Yeah. And while putting together a plan for this race later in the year, it was also kind of important to, to a certain extent, balance that, that with the idea that, Hey, running is something I will want to do continuously. So I should also kind of try to set up my training as if running is a lifelong pursuit and and train in a way that is sustainable that will make me want to continue running forever and it was kind of that thought that prompted this this thought that maybe we should treat the LSAT in the same way yeah what would it look like to study for the LSAT as if it was just something that was a part of your life forever <laughs> not yeah. saying that it will be but like is do you think there's anything yeah. to, to that? No, I think there is. Okay, so here's the thing that I think people absolutely have to do, and that is let go of timelines. But they have to let go because that's the fastest way to getting the best score you can get and therefore getting into the best school you can get into for hopefully for free. And so it, when, you, when you have these artificial timelines, it's like you cram and that's not the best way to prepare on the test, or you, you make compromises that are not effective for your application, right? Like, well, I'll just settle for this 158. And it's like, ugh. And, and so if that thought, okay, I'm gonna study forever, and that allows you to push out all these, oh, but I gotta finish, oh, but I gotta finish, but I gotta finish by this time, then, that's golden. I could see some people also maybe thinking that and then like doing nothing. Yeah. Like it becomes like, uh, I have all this time and, but even, Hey, that might not be the worst thing, right? Like if you're not motivated enough to study for the LSAT, then maybe you shouldn't be going to law school. Maybe that's a, it's a sign, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I love the idea. It's the same thing you have to think when you do a time section, right? You're going to just work on it until the time runs out and you're not trying to game it and get the things in within the time you have, that's actually a recipe for a poor score. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for writing in. Um, Spencer wrote in and Ben, we get seemingly half of the emails that come into the show now are asking about GPA addendums. And interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. It seems to be a new phenomenon the last couple of weeks. Maybe we talked about them too much. Maybe some of the advice just triggers people to want to say, "Hey, how about this? How about this?" Maybe we can read this one and 
use it to give i don't know if we can create just sort of like a more definite flow chart or heuristic for gpa addendum questions generally I, we'll probably never yeah. stop getting gpa addendum questions but yeah um, i think we can come we can up with something to. we got some rules anyways yeah. so spencer is a d1 athlete uh asking about a gpa addendum spencer says i am currently a division one athlete and rising senior in undergrad I am planning on applying to law school in September, yet I am worried about my GPA. My UGPA is a 3.2. I have had a strong junior year with a 4.0 this semester and a good chance to earn close to 4.0 for both semesters of my senior year. I have yet to take an official LSAT, but have been PTing at or above my target school 75th percentile somewhat consistently. I would love to know what that number actually is, but okay. I have attached a sample addendum below. Please feel free to tear it to shreds. Respectfully, Spencer. So Spencer's uh, addendum is at least short. It's not the like full Google Docs page that other listeners have sent in. Um, Spencer writes, I am a division one swimmer dedicating 20 to 30 hours per week to training and athletic related activities. My GPA has demonstrated a steep upward trend as I matured and learned how to manage these commitments. I believe my more recent grades are more indicative of the student I am currently. So I have an immediate, like, kind of negative gut reaction when people start trying to explain their low GPA because I think there's almost always a counter argument to it. I'm I'm hesitating a little bit here because these are facts, right? Division one swimmer, impressive, twenty to thirty hours per week training impressive. So I'm not sure what I think about the first sentence. Like I could see it being good or bad largely because it's facts. I mm -hmm. absolutely hate this mentions the time they spent the time that Spencer spends training every week. Yes. Yes. I, I don't love the fact that it's an excuse. There's part of me that just wants to do a mic drop, which is, Hey, the last two semesters or my last two years, right? You're a junior, so hopefully you can continue this as in your senior year. That would make it a lot more powerful. You just say, for the last two years, I've maintained a 4.0. Done, right? Like, okay, you did it. You produced the goods. Why, how, what? People don't care about that shit. And that's where this is like, I think it is a it is a feather in your cap that you're a Division One swimmer. It is impressive that you've done all this work. I just... I hate the feeling of I'm making excuses for myself, right? Mm. Like you didn't do it. Now you did do it. That's all I care about. Did you do it? Yeah, I did it. I did it for the last two years. I had a 4.0 or 3.9 or whatever it is, something better than your 3.2. But I'm on the fence for that first sentence. The second mm -hmm. sentence, no. My GPA has demonstrated a steep upward trend as I matured. Yes. There's all sorts of problems with this sentence, Spencer. First, demonstrated a steep upward trend. Okay, that's a conclusion. It's not a fact. It's what someone would, people could argue about whether it was steep, upward, <laughs> demonstrated, right? How about just give us the number? It's my in my last two years, in my junior and senior year, or whatever you want to say, I had a 3.93. Just give us the number. End of story, mic drop, right? Like it's over. But then this whole, I matured, I learned how to manage things. Again, these are unverifiable claims, right? I mean, on some level, 
yes, I can see that because your GPA has gone up, but I see that because your GPA went up, not because you're telling me, right? So again, mm -hmm. out. Definitely cut the second sentence. Just give us the numbers, your GPA numbers. Last sentence, I believe. I know Nathan, I think, says this sometimes. Um, if you're going to say this, I believe my more recent grades are more indicative of the student I am currently. Uh, I would definitely cut the I believe. Just say they are my more recent grades or my, yeah, my recent grades are more indicative of the student I am currently. Even then, I just... I don't find it very interesting or persuasive. It's you got a 4.0, you got a 3.9 now. That is what is going to hit people. And the more you say, the more that gets buried, right? So what, what yeah. are your thoughts? Well, the the steep upward trend, the, the talk about the upward trend, and this is something that may be partially responsible for why we're getting so many emails asking about GPA addendums, um, which... Thank you all for writing into the show. We just can't answer every single one of those emails. Sure. That's something that you have talked about before. And it reminds me that that University of Colorado study that I mentioned at near the top of the show, looking at the predictive power of various factors in determining your law school success, they looked at upward trend in undergraduate GPA as one of the factors. And I don't remember, I or I didn't read how predictive it was as an individual factor, but it is at the very least seemingly something that law schools look at as a as as a factor to consider in whether you are on the right trajectory for law school. So to that yeah. extent, it's something that I think we now have evidence law school admissions offices will look at is whether there was an upward trend in your GPA. So yeah. to that extent, yeah, it could be a good thing to highlight. The question that I have is do we learn anything in this GPA addendum that we can't find out elsewhere on the application? Well, no. And we don't learn things that the GPA addendum is meant to highlight, right? I want to know that GPA right. number that's going to be reported, that's not, sorry, not going to be reported on the transcript. Your GPA yeah. for your last two years or your last year or whatever. I still... Eric, have to take issue with this phrase because I feel like that idea is still conveyed by talking about the number you got in your last year or your last two years or your last three semesters, whatever year you want to focus on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's if you're going to demonstrate an upward trend, you should do so with numbers, not by saying yeah. there's an upward trend. And you don't need to say these numbers demonstrate an upper. You totally. just say that you just say what happened, and then that is what would work. So I if agree. I were to rewrite this, I would just have the first sentence, and then one more sentence that says, "In my last two years, I got X GPA." I think that works. Um, maybe cut the first sentence. <laughs> I'm really in favor of just that number. That yeah. is what they care about. I mean, these people are reading these things fast. And the shorter this is, the more happy they're going to be. But maybe two sentences. Fine. See, I would yeah. I, I would push back even more. I just think I come back to that question of. Am I learning something new? From this statement yeah. is 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 this GPA addendum valuable to me in that it tells me something about you that I couldn't have found out for myself elsewhere in your your application? Like maybe well, it is helpful to highlight the important facts, but also Schools have your transcripts. If they care about whether there's an upward trend in your GPA, they can look for that and see it in your transcripts, right? 
they know that you're a division one swimmer. You and your applications will tell them how many hours you spent on those applications. Like I, I remember from applications, there is the option to, to list the number of hours spent on each activity. So like, I just think every fact in this shows up elsewhere on your application. So I, I yeah. wonder why we spend the time spending more time on this. Well, I think of it as like a call to action button on a website, right? Like if you land on a website and one of the buttons is red, you're much or green or blue or whatever, and all the others are gray, I think you're much more likely to click that, right? And I think this is why we want to be selective in the facts that we drop into these addendums. But this is an opportunity to put a little like neon light on some of those facts that would be buried, including an upward grade trend, right? Make We're just trying yeah. to make it easy, I guess, for the admissions okay. person. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so maybe if we are summarizing, make it short, stick to the facts, use it as an opportunity to just make it easy for an admissions person to quickly see that fact about yourself that puts you in a positive light, I guess. Yeah, and I'm going to say a general rule here that will probably be carved out with exceptions later, but I get the sense that sometimes people are trying to write addendums when they don't have a great, when their GPA didn't go up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And it just, just sounds excusing. like you're, yeah, then it's just going to become excuses like, oh, but I had this tough semester and I had COVID or I don't know, whatever their excuse is. If your GPA went up, write an addendum, say the number that it was went up to, right? Um, if not, probably an addendum is not for you. And it's just gonna highlight, think about that button. Now we're gonna put the spotlight on something bad? Definitely don't do that. Use this as yeah. a spotlight for, the, for one or two good things and they are gonna be facts, not conclusions. Enough said. Cool. What's Let so me summarize this briefly. So Brianna sure. wrote in um, asking about a program in Washington State, which would allow you to essentially become an attorney by not going to law school, by sitting for the bar after a four-year work-study program with a judge or attorney who tutors you. California has a similar thing where you don't technically need to go to law school. You could just kind of intern or tutor with an attorney for a few years, uh, and then if you qualify sit for the bar after that work study. Brianna just asks generally what we think of these programs and these opportunities. I don't know that I have strong thoughts about this, but it would potentially be a way of not paying for law school to not go to yeah. law school and just work with a judge and follow this route. What do you think, Ben? Well, I love it. I love the fact that someone is getting paid, right, to get their degree. Because if you hate the work you're doing, Maybe you shouldn't spend any more time doing this, but all you've risked is the time it took you to work and you were getting paid while you're doing that versus law school, which flips the tables entirely. You still have to spend the time, but you're turning around and paying someone else, even if it's just a little bit of money or tuition. Um, I like this and I like you have someone invested in you. My only question is, okay, if you do this, then can you practice law anywhere else or are you limited to the state of Washington, that would be my only hesitation. Something you need to look into. Um, I would also, Brianna, just find some people who actually did this. Like just because it is stated as something that can be done, does that mean people actually do this and go on to have successful careers as attorneys? 
Yeah. It's maybe instructive that you found out about this from an immigration attorney who attended your top pick ABA accredited law school. So you weren't told about this by someone who went through this program. I'm not saying that that means it doesn't happen. Just I would be sure that it is actually a thing people do and that it leads to the sort of career outcomes that you would want for yourself, including, Definitely. you know, if, if it restricts you to working in Washington state. So just do your research. Otherwise, yeah, I'm with you, Ben. I think it could be a way to not pay for law school. Yeah, that's great. I mean, definitely 100%. You need to do your due diligence. It would be foolish not to. At the same time, I'm optimistic. I mean, you're working with somebody. That's got to be immensely more valuable than sitting in on a class, going to another class, you know, professors who don't give a shit or even practice themselves. I mean, how much... <laughs> you would <laughs> be crazy. better prepared the, to be education an Education system yeah. is just not doing what it's supposed to do. Anyways. No. Yes. Let us know yeah. what you find out, Brianna. Ben, did you know that I got paid to study for the LSAT? Oh, by working for us or what? Yeah. <laughs> when I was actually <laughs> studying for the LSAT, I was uh, on your payroll. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Now we're yeah. going to get a bunch of applications. I'd love to work for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, help at LSATdemon.com if you uh, want to work out and get paid to study for the LSAT. Uh, are we still looking for teachers? And we are. Then... Yep. Always, okay. actually. Cool. So. If you like the podcast, you like how we approach the LSAT, and you also want to work for us, we need teachers and we need people who help with the ask button. If you know what that is, then um, you can be on the other end of that and enlighten people every day. Be LSAT famous. Please ask questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. Eric, thanks for coming on the show and always providing the content too here. Um, you all now know who uh, Eric is if you haven't seen him already on the Demon Dailies. Have you been on this episode? Have you been on the Thinking LSAT podcast as well? Or Nope. Wow. I have not. Okay, sorry. It's like a blur with 400 episodes, but yeah. okay. <laughs> Anyways, that was episode 403 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks y'all, all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for lost.